0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as is our custom Scripture teaches that at any given moment, we're either walking by the Spirit or we're walking according to the sin nature. When we sin, we are out of fellowship. We are no longer walking by the Spirit. In order to recover that uh, uh, spiritual power in our life and to resume spiritual growth, we need to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and instantly we are uh, forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're spiritually prepared for this evening. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come together this evening. We're grateful for the grace that you have bestowed upon us for the grace that you have given in terms of sending your son, Jesus Christ, into human history, that he might go to the cross and bear our sin penalty in our place, that we might have eternal life by simply trusting in him and him alone. Father, we're thankful for the heritage of this nation that has provided us with such wonderful freedoms. But today these freedoms are under assault, as they have been for several decades. But today the intensity has grown quite a bit. We're thankful for men in both the state legislature as well as the national legislature who are seeking ways in which they can shore up these walls uh, that uh, protect our freedoms, but they're being assaulted in many from many directions, and we pray for each one of them that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, and that they may not be discouraged because the battle is intense for them almost every day. Father, we're thankful for the fact that we have a state legislature here in in Texas that is willing to back the uh, clergy, to back churches, and to protect them uh, legally, even though we believe that has already been done by the First Amendment. Nevertheless, because there are many who wish to attack traditional Christian beliefs and to destroy the influence of Christianity in the church, we pray that you would... uh, uh, caused this bill, this clergy protection bill, to be um, received favorably in the uh, legislature and voted on soon. Father, we also pray for the Supreme Court that you would open their eyes to the extreme danger that will develop as a result of the legalization nationally of uh, same-sex marriage, the long-term and unintended consequences of such a decision and that we need to uh, continue to maintain the traditional historic view of marriage that was established at the original creation father we pray your protection upon this nation and that you would continue to raise up uh, men and women who are oriented to the word of god to provide leadership for us and we pray tonight as we study your word that we might be encouraged by the fact that you hear us you listen to us you respond to our prayers and you are the God of the armies who is in control of all events on, in the history of this planet. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, because I stated this on Sunday, uh, yesterday I was at the state legislature at the state Senate where they held a hearing in the Senate chamber itself. Uh, they had the committee hearing there over this uh Senate bill, identified as Senate Bill 2065, there's a similar bill in the House that had already been um, uh, uh, reviewed by in committee and had been voted out of committee, and so I understand that since yesterday, the Senate bill has now been voted out of committee, and so we're just waiting for it to get on the calendar so that it can be voted on by the state legislature so you can make that a matter of prayer. Uh, went there yesterday. There were approximately, I would say, 50 or 60 uh, pastors that were there. They were, they vastly outnumbered the opponents of the bill. There were three groups there. One group, his name I did not quite get. Another is uh, sort of the Texas Freedom Coalition, put freedom in quotes. It is a very liberal organization and also pro same sex marriage, as is the uh, American. Uh, Civil Liberties Union. Uh, what I found interesting was that uh, these three organizations all were fairly supportive of the bill, uh, because, but they had some questions about some of the language in the bill, just defining some terms that were in the bill that they thought were a little bit ambiguous. Uh, I, that was not something that I thought there were – saw any red flags over. Uh, at this point in um, in their discussions and in their in their communications – they claim that they are not seeking to uh, force churches or religious organizations to validate or to perform any marriages that go against their convictions. What I found interesting was the ACLU, Texas uh, ACLU representative there, even mentioned the fact that there are different views among different religious groups as to uh, performing marriages uh, <clears throat> for people who have been divorced, uh, different other uh, issues related to to uh, marriage, and that they did not want to get into any of those issues. However, I I don't really believe them. I, uh, I I've been watching most of you. We've seen this these reform groups that want to change America, and what they do is they start off with small steps, and they go one small step at a time, and that's all they want to do is just achieve this next level in their agenda, and then as soon as they achieve that, then they want to go to another level. Uh, back in the 70s, when the anti-smoker campaign uh, wanted to uh, w- wanted to change things, the first thing they wanted to do was just have a non-smoking area in, the, in, a, in a restaurant. Never at that time would they have ever t- said, well, eventually what we want to do is prevent people who smoke from smoking in their own homes or smoking in their own apartments where their secondhand smoke might uh, seep through the sheetrock or the ventilation system to the apartment next door, so we want to shut it all down. That th- th- I'm u- just using that as an example of how you have this incrementalism. And we've seen the same thing in, in the whole issue with gay rights, homosexual rights, same-sex marriages. They just take it one little step at a time, and as soon as they get one uh one level ex, uh accepted then they move to the next level and i believe that their ultimate agenda is to uh force church church groups religious groups to approve of their of their lifestyle because ultimately i think that they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness it is a moral rebellion on their part just as any sin is and we we need to be careful there are different consequences for different sins But sin is sin, and we don't want to be uh, legislating things that approve one person's pet sins and disapproving of someone else's pet sins. That's a violation of the First Amendment. But there are some people who wish to shred the First Amendment. Anyway, I gave my two minutes yesterday, and I thought I would read those uh, to you. I just started off briefly introducing myself. I said, uh, uh, Madam Chairman and the committee, Uh, My name's Robert Dean, and I'm the pastor of West Houston Bible Church in Houston, Texas, and I'm representing myself and my congregation as uh, of uh, a little over 100 people, as well as several thousand who listen over the internet, many of whom are in Texas. I also represent a group of several pastors who weren't able to be here who have congregations in places like Fredericksburg and Austin, uh, San Antonio, Dallas, Rockwall, Lubbock, and um, Brenham, Sugarland, a number of other places. I said I'm speaking in support of uh, Senate Bill 2065. I'm grateful to State Senator Craig Estes for authoring this critical and timely piece of legislation. As a member of the clergy, I cannot stress enough how concerned clergy are at the potential threat to their freedom. Not only Evangelical leaders oppose same-sex marriage, but Orthodox Jewish rabbis oppose same-sex marriage. Muslim imams oppose same-sex marriage. Mormons oppose same-sex marriage, as many other uh, religions do oppose same-sex marriage. Almost 400 years ago, our forefathers left everything they knew, every comfort of home and family, and departed in ships bound for an unknown land as they fled religious persecution and government control of pulpits In England and Europe, the freedom of speech, the freedom to preach and teach and practice our religious beliefs without interference from government is a bedrock of American liberty and provides the moral compass and conscience of our nation for a nation to be spiritually healthy. The freedom to pursue one's own spiritual convictions and to be trained and educated within those religious traditions is at the very core of the concept of liberty. Pastors must be free to teach the entirety of the Bible. Failure to protect the clergy from the intimidation of government or those who disagree will have a chilling effect on sincere expression of firmly held religious beliefs. Recent events, such as the attempt by the mayor of Houston to subpoena pastors' sermons and the reported statement by the U.S. Solicitor General that if the U.S. Supreme Court decides in favor of same-sex marriage that the tax-exempt status of many religious organizations will be lost, are truly distressing. I believe that in the event that the Supreme Court rules in favor of same-sex marriage, and grants the right of homosexual partners to marry, then an enormous cultural war will explode. Lawsuits against pastors in religious organizations will increase exponentially. Advocates of same-sex marriage will attempt to force religious institutions to validate and affirm their behavior while not allowing others the freedom to hold to differing views. I do not believe this bill has anything to do with judging the actions or behaviors of others, but protects the rights of clergy of a number of religions to continue to teach and affirm historic truths which have been at the core of their religious beliefs for thousands of years. Please vote to pass this bill out of committee. So I heard just this afternoon that they did vote it out of committee, so we need to pray that it will be on the calendar. So next step, next battle. They're going to be fast and furious, and I do believe that we will see overt persecution of Christians over this issue and other issues within the next decade, and it is therefore more important than anything that we all prepare ourselves to handle this kind of adversity. And with that in mind, we need to look at First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 1, today I'm going to hopefully get to, through the Rest of this particular chapter. The focus here is on God's answer to Hannah's prayer. God's answer to Hannah's prayer. And as we look at this, we're reminded that the focus of this section, this opening section of 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 8 is focusing on God's gracious provision of a new leader in view of a change in Israel. And it's gracious because the focus is on this wonderful woman, Hannah, whose name means grace. So she, her very name emphasizes the fact that this is focusing upon, uh, upon grace. Now, in this, uh, we've already looked at some of the issues underlying this passage dealing with her uh, distress the fact that she's under persecution from her rival, the second wife, uh, Penina, and these, these things, and that she is, as a result of this, going to the Lord in prayer. It's important to recognize that she has two options like we all have. Option number one is to solve our problems through the Word of God. Option number two is to handle our problems through human viewpoint. Human viewpoint is always related to sin nature control. Human viewpoint is the thinking of the cosmic system. Often it appears to us to be common sense. Sometimes it appears to us to be the culturally acceptable thing to do, because that's what we were taught growing up. That's how we can handle this particular kind of problem. But what we have to do is go to the Word of God, guided by the Spirit of God, and do what the Word of God says to do to handle these particular problems. In this culture, at that time, the dominant religious view in Israel was the uh belief in the f- value of the fertility gods Baal and Asherah, and so many of the Jews had assimilated or they had compromised with the uh, religions of the day and when they had a drought when they had problems with the productivity of their crops when they ha- fa- when women faced barrenness that instead of going to God the Yahweh the god of Abraham Isaac and Jacob they would turn to the fertility religions and they would seek some sort of solution that was apart from exclusive dependence upon god and here we have a situation where Hannah turns to god in first samuel chapter 1 verse 11 let's read this then she made a vow so the family has gone uh, annually up to the tabernacle to the house of the Lord in Shiloh and uh, at this particular time she is weeping and she has been uh, ridiculed and reviled by her rival and so she is having all of this distress and so she turns to the Lord And in verse 10, we read, she was in bitterness of soul. That's an idiom, as we've seen, that doesn't mean she was bitter, but just that it's recognizing the distress, the sorrows, the heartaches of life. And she prayed to the Lord, and she wept in anguish. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to the Lord and expressing uh, our our deepest sorrows and our anguish over the way things are. But if we stop there, we're just wallowing in self-pity. The focus is we look at a group of psalms that uh, focus on uh, the lament of the author. A group of psalms are classified as lament psalms that they always end up starting with the problem, focusing on the character of God, moving through that to understanding the divine solution to the problem and concluding with a praise to God. And so we'll see that in this in this particular chapter. So the text starts off saying that she uh, prays to the Lord of hosts. Now in Hebrew, Lord, as we see in English, when it's uppercase like that, refers to the uh, sacred tetragrammaton, the four letters. Tetragrammaton means four letters, Y-H-W-H. In the Hebrew language, that's a, a Yod, a He, a Vav, and a He. And the W is usually pronounced like a V, and it, it is the name of God. Now in the original language, in in Hebrew, they didn't write with vowels. So much later in Uh, Jewish history, in order to preserve the pronunciation of letters, vowel points were added, and uh, they never wanted to pronounce the name of God, and they would refer to God either as Adonai or as Hashem. Now, they would take the Hebrew vowels in Adonai, and they would put those under the consonants in uh, the YHWH, and so when it was converted, the Y would uh, be—a lot of this work was done in German— a y was converted to a J, and then they added an E class vowel, and then the H uh, hey was added, and then the O in uh, Ad- Adonai, the A, we have it as an A, but it's really an E class vowel in English. So you have E O, and then A, and that would be come out as J E H O V A H. Now, the, Jehovah isn't God's name. Yahweh is God's name. Jehovah has the consonants from one name and the vowels from another name. And those were put together. And this occurred sometime in the Middle Ages. So technically, there's, you know, even though that's entered into many hymns and we sing those, and I'll just uh, give that, credit that to poetic license. She uses the name Yahweh, which is significant here. And it shows a high degree of of. Her understanding of the character of God, but she doesn't just address him as Yahweh. She addresses him as Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the Lord of Hosts. That's how it's translated. Uh, hosts is a rather uh, antiquated English word. It means armies. He is Yahweh of the armies. What's interesting is that this phrase, this description of God as the Yahweh of the armies is used 234 or 235 times in the Old Testament. The first time that it is used is right here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, when talking about Elkanah says, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. She is the location of the, of the tabernacle. So that's the first mention and then when Hannah prays, she addresses her prayer in verse 11 to the Lord of hosts. This says something about the uh, doctrinal understanding and doctrinal orientation within the family of Elkanah. That they had an accurate view of God, they haven't assimilated to one of the pagan gods, and that they understand the sovereignty of God. That she, that, that God is the creator God, and God is in control of the affairs of life, and God is the God of history. And so when she prays, the fact that she addresses her prayer, uh, to the lord of the armies is particularly significant another thing i found significant is that this phrase uh, this term for god is used 10 times in the two books of samuel remember they were originally one book now isn't that interesting the first time it's used is here the last time it's used is in the context of the davidic covenant when uh, Nathan tells David uh, that God is granting him this covenant, and David uh, responds by praising the Lord of hosts, so that you have this as the book ends in between expressing the sovereignty of God over the history of, of Israel and establishing the nation of Israel. So there, there's an in, implication there by the author of Samuel to bring out uh, this emphasis on the sovereign direction of God over over the history of Israel. So the first thing we see in this prayer is that she addresses God as the as Yahweh of the armies, the Lord of the armies. She shows that she recognizes His sovereignty, and she shows her understanding of her role. Uh, as a servant of God within the cosmos and that she is oriented to the plan of God. Second thing we see in this verse is that three times she refers to herself as God's maidservant. She is here to serve the Lord. She shows an attitude of humility and submission to the authority of God. And so this again reflects a high level of spiritual understanding on the part of of Hannah. And then the third thing we, we ought to note is that she says to God, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant, if you will indeed look. Now that sounds pretty polite in English. In Hebrew, she uses a specific kind of grammatical construction that's where a cal infinitive absolute is followed immediately by a cal perfect uh, of the verb. In other words, you're repeating the verb. Now, you all have heard something related to this almost your entire Christian life. If you go over to Genesis chapter 2, Verse 17, God says, The day in which you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's translated, you will surely die. Now, the grammatical structure is to take that same verb and to repeat it twice, first as an infinitive absolute and second as a perfect tense verb. In Hebrew, this doesn't mean, as you've been taught, dying you will die, because this would be translated, Lord, seeing you will see. This doesn't make sense. And you have this phrase used a number of times throughout the book of Genesis and in numerous other books. It is a way that the Hebrews emphasized uh, the certainty or the intensity of an action. So that what God is saying in Genesis 2.17 is the day that you eat, you are certainly, definitely going to die. It's talking about what happened that day, not a progress or process of dying and then another kind of death. That's that's grammatically uh, totally foreign to, to the concept and it doesn't fit any other uh, use of the term. And that's what she's saying here. She's basically, what she is basically saying is, Lord, you need to take a good hard look at what's going on in my life. It's intense. It expresses a passion, an intensity to God because she is in emotional distress because of all of the insults that she has been having to put up with. So she's saying, Lord, just take a really hard look. Just pay attention to what's going on with my life. And if you'll look, this is what I'm going to do. She says, if you will just take a good hard look at the affliction of your maidservant and remember you... Then this is what I'm going to do. And then she expresses her vow. But that is an important principle that she makes there, stating that, that, uh, she feels very strongly about the, what's going on in her life, the circumstances in her life, and, and the, uh, distress that she feels. I think a lot of times people don't express themselves this way in prayer. We are, we want to be very polite with God, and we think that when we are upset over something that I must be wrong, I'm out of line here, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling uh, distraught, uh, I am in tremendous grief and sorrow and pain, but that's inherently wrong. And we've seen in the last two or three weeks, it's not inherently wrong. What we do with it is wrong. And when we're coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm really upset, I'm mad at you, I'm mad at the circumstances, I don't understand what is going on, and that's our starting point, that is where we are. And if you look at these psalms, uh, some of the lament psalms, for example, Psalms uh, 3 through 5, Psalms 7, Psalms 9 and 10, in fact, except for Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 6, and Psalm eight, the first ten Psalms are, are are all lament Psalms except for those three. Psalms thirteen and fourteen. Psalms seventeen, twenty-two, twenty-five to twenty-eight, and that's just a starting point. You see, if you read those Psalms, you see how David pours out his anguish to God, and you can read through the Psalm and see how he that as he focuses on where he is, and then he focuses on the character of God. Then he comes out the other end at the end of the psalm by expressing praise to God, confident that God is going to deliver him from these horrible circumstances. And so there's nothing wrong with expressing your frustration to God. But don't just stop there. It's not a pity party. It's not just the opportunity to wallow in your sorrow and your grief or your depression, but to let that drive you to focus on the person And the character of God. Now, she expresses it here with this word, affliction. Look on the affliction of your maidservant. And the word there that is uh, translated affliction is the uh, noun, uh, oni, which basically means affliction or oppression or hardship. It's from the verb anah which has that same idea to afflict, to oppress, or even to humble, which recognizes that one of the effects that God wishes to produce in our life when he takes us through tests is to bring us to a point of humility, to submit to his authority and recognize that he is bringing these uh, adversities into our life for a purpose, to test us, to train us, and to strengthen us so that we can Uh, develop spiritual stability and strength to face greater challenges and greater difficulties. So... God often uses uh, uh, affliction in the Old Testament for different purposes. Sometimes he brings affliction into people's lives in order to get their attention so that they will change course, so that they will turn back to God, so that they will confess their sins and continue to grow. Uh, This is how uh, the word is used in uh, reference to uh, Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. God was humbling Israel, and this word... Uh, Anna is used there. Uh, the same kind of thing is used in reference to the exile when God took Israel out of the land. It was to humble Israel. And so this again is uh, the use of this particular verb at that point. Uh, I believe this is what was going on at some degree with uh, Hannah was bringing her to a point of complete dependence upon God as she went through this affliction so that when it was time for her to pour her heart out to God, then God answered the prayer. It was clear that this was done as as an act of total dependence upon God, that only God could solve her problem as only God can solve the problem of the Israelites at that time, and only God can solve the problems that we face in our lives. So this brings us to the doctrine of uh, adversity testing. And just by way of introduction, these are a couple of passages in Psalm 119 about how it is the Word of God. The Word of God is mentioned in one way or another in every verse in Psalm 119, And Psalm 119:50 and Psalm 119:92 use this word "oni" to express uh, the the role of affliction and the solution to affliction. In Psalm 119:50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. It's God's word that gives us life. It is, as I mentioned on Sunday, it's the Memra of God, which is the spoken a uh, word that is uh, r- relative to lagos the word of god the lagos of god memra is often translated lagos when it comes from uh, comes from hebrew into greek so it's a reference also to the living word of god psalm 119:92 unless your law had been my delight i would then have perished in my affliction So when we say the law is my delight, that is something that develops. It's something that doesn't happen just initially. But we have to read and study and memorize the word of God. And as we do that, then we come to know it in a much fuller manner and we fall in love with the word of god and it becomes our delight and it is stored in our soul and as a result of that then we can have life when we face affliction and this is what david is saying here if the law had not been my delight then i would have perished in my affliction so let's just have a brief summary of the doctrine of adversity i've gone through this in a number of places I'll be going through this quite a bit in 1 Peter as we go through that, but I'll just give us a little brief reminder of these principles in 1 Samuel here. First of all, adversity, as I talk about adversity and stress, adversity is the outside pressure of either adversity, adverse circumstances, or prosperity Whereas stress is the inside pressure, the response to the outside pressure, the inside pressure in the soul. Now, everyone faces both adversity and prosperity. Adversity can be the result of either external circumstances or we can create a certain amount of adversity in our lives by our own giving in to our own emotions. So it can also be generated by our own thoughts uh, within our own soul. In Industry. Whether you're in the computer industry or if you're working in metals or in a number of other uh, business senses, even in banking, they talk about stress testing. And stress testing is a term that's used to describe procedures where varying degrees of external pressures are put upon some system in order to determine the stability of those systems. Uh, under extreme circumstances, so you know that they are going to be stable in normal circumstances. This involves testing that goes beyond the normal everyday capacity for these systems, but in the stress testing it takes, tries to take things to even the breaking point in order to reveal the strengths and the stability of a system. So when you talk about stress testing, uh, in the spiritual life, we're talking about God taking us through various tests for a variety of reasons in order to, not to cause us to fail, but to reveal the strength that we have from the Word of God. Now, where in the world are we going to go to support this? Well, one place we're going to go is in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where James says, "'Count it all blessings, my brethren, when you encounter various trials.'" Now, those trials are these adversity tests. When you encounter various trials, because you know something, because you know that the testing of your faith, and there we have a Greek word there that means to expose the the value that's there, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so that's the idea. God takes us through stress tests in order to teach us, to train us, to discipline us, He takes us through stress tests so we get rid of the things that are superfluous uh, distractions in our lives. He takes us through stress tests in order to show us that we've really learned a lot of doctrine and we can survive things that we didn't think we could survive. 1 Corinthians uh, 10.13 says, "...there is no testing taken you, but such as is common to man." No testing taken you such as is common to man. In terms of categories, we all go through the same basic tests. Even the Lord Jesus Christ went through those tests. Uh, The testing of your faith, uh, kind of all joy. When excuse excuse me, there's no testing taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with the testing, make a way to escape. Now that's an awkward translation in English because people think people stop there and they go, oh good, that's it. I can get away from it. But read to the end of the verse. It says, That you may be able to escape um, the, the testing of your faith. How's that go? Uh, count it all joy when you uh, Excuse me. There's no testing taking you, but such a common command. God is faithful, who will with the test make a way to escape, that you may be able to endure it. That's the purpose. Not so you can get away from it, but that you can endure it. That you can stay under the pressure. That you can persevere under that under that pressure. And so that's the idea. The outside pressure of adversity is going to expose what is on the inside. So we're going to face all kinds of circumstances in life. Some are negative, some are positive, and they can be an enormous distraction to our spiritual life. Let me tell you, having to take the time to drive to Austin to sit in the Senate chamber and fortunately, thank God, a lot of people were praying. And unlike with the House bill, was up uh, the week before, we didn't have to sit there until six or seven o'clock at night. That this bill was taken as a second matter of business that that and of that committee. First bill was uh, handled in about ten minutes, and then this was a second bill. And I was called about an hour into the testimony, and there were, that testimony probably went on for another two hours. But if that bill was taken at the end of the day, there were 10 bills that were supposed to be looked at. If that was taken at 4, 5, or 6 o'clock at night, it would have gone on until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So thankfully, that didn't take that long. But that was still a distraction. There was a lot of things I needed to do. There are a lot of things I can only do when I'm sitting at my desk. There are a lot of things that I have to do in terms of studying And some people would say that for pastors to get involved in things like that, that's a distraction. And you know what? It is a distraction. But if we don't stop the enemy when they are attacking, then we may not have the opportunity to have a ministry five or ten years down the road. This is exactly what happened during the time of the American War for Independence. Pastors recognized that if they were going to have effective ministries over the long haul, that they had to leave their pulpits, put on the uniform of the Continental Army, and they had to go lead the men in their congregations in battle against the British to secure liberties of the pulpit so that they could then go back to their pulpits and have a life of effective ministry. So sometimes in all of our lives, there are things that come into our lives that are tests, that are distractions, and we have to recognize that yes, it's a distraction, but I have to deal with it now so that the long-term goals can be, uh, can be accomplished. And so I'm afraid that more and more distractions of this type are going to be coming our way over the coming years, and we have to keep our focus on the long-term end game and not on just the immediate requirements and the immediate needs of the ministry and the congregation. Now, in the second point, we recognize that adversity is what circumstances of life do to you. All kinds of circumstances affect us. We have shifts in our health. We have shifts... In our financial situation. We have shifts in our, uh, job situation. We have shifts in our relationships. We have shifts in our, uh, education situation. All kinds of circumstances change and that puts an external pressure upon us. But what, the, but stress is what we do in response to those external pressures when things change, we have a choice as to how we're going to respond. Are we going to respond by getting upset, by getting angry, by getting frustrated, by pounding our fists and our heads against the wall or against somebody else? Or Are we going to learn to relax and trust God? That's part of what we are supposed to be learning in the test. That's part of grace orientation is to develop a uh, a relaxed mental attitude. And so... We recognize adversity is what's on the outside. We can't control it. We can't determine when it's going to come. We're going to have all kinds of different kinds of testing, some from people, some from systems like customer service. Nobody knows what I'm talking about there. We'll just move on. Bureaucracies, again, nobody knows what I'm talking about. You have bureaucracies in every office. You have bureaucracies and every every time you get more than 5 people working together you have some sort of uh, bureaucratic situation you have to have to work through so there's system testing there's thought testing when circumstances come up you're listening to talk radio you're listening to the news and your thoughts just phew, they're just right out there in the wrong direction so we have thought testing often this is related to lust patterns of the sin nature Not just sexual lust, but you also have financial lust or monetary lust. You have power lust. You have a lust for recognition or approbation or approval. So there's all kinds of thought testing that goes on. There's prosperity testing. When things are going well, do we still trust the Lord? And disaster testing. I had one man tell me years ago, that uh, when he was just starting his business and he was just barely able to pay his bills each month, that he had to listen to Bible class every day, read his Bible every day, pray every day, because it forced him to depend upon the Lord. But when things got really good and things got really comfortable and he was making a lot of money, then it wasn't so important to spend every day in the Word of God. It was a much more difficult test to stay focused on on the word now stress is volitional it's up to us how we respond we respond by we're supposed to respond by casting our care upon him because he cares for us first peter five seven but what we often do is try to find some way to manipulate the circumstances to solve the problem through our own control rather than resting and relaxing in God and letting him control. When we have a relaxed mental attitude, we can avoid the emotional reactions that intensify the fragmentation and stress in our own soul, and we can develop poise under pressure. Now, the third principle is that adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. We live in the devil's world. This means that we're surrounded by corruption, we're surrounded by sin, we're surrounded by the devil's disciples who are seeking to control uh, politics, business, economics, everything. They're trying to control how you run your business, how you run your lawnmower. Everything is up to somebody else, and we have to learn how to respond to that. We live in a world that is subject to failure, breakdown, disruption, death, and disaster, and we have to learn to just trust in God. Fourth point is that stress is always the result of sin nature control. You only have two options in life, divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. Doing it God's way or my way. Those are the only options that we have uh, in life. And we have to learn to handle the adversity through these ten problem-solving spiritual skills. They're skills because we have to practice them. Let me just remind you. First of all, when we're out of fellowship, nothing counts for eternity, so we have to confess sin. But it doesn't stop there. We confess sin so that we can restore the walk by the Holy Spirit. Then we have to trust God. The basic fundamentals are the faith rest drill. We mix our faith with the promises of God and where the Word of God is more real to us then the heartache, the difficulty, the pleasure of our experiences. Then we have to orient our thinking to the Bible. Now, if you're going to orient your thinking to the Bible, don't you think you need to know your Bible? You need to understand your Bible. Just reading the Bible from cover to cover gives you the basic building blocks. It's not going to erect the structure of spiritual maturity but without an understanding of the basic building blocks, you can't get to the point where you really understand all of the principles. So we have to be oriented to the Bible, and we have to be oriented to grace. We have to understand grace in every aspect of our life. Sixth, this then leads us to a personal sense of our eternal destiny. The more we grow, the more we come to understand that we're living today in light of eternity. That's First Peter. And so we have to develop that as we develop that, we come to know God more deeply, more profoundly, and our personal love for God develops, which motivates us. As we come to understand our love for God and His love for all mankind, then we can emulate that through an unconditional or impersonal love for all mankind. Impersonal doesn't mean that somehow it's divorced from personal interaction. It means we don't necessarily have a personal relationship with the people we're to love, like the person on the other end of the phone in a customer service conversation that speaks Indian or Pakistani or whatever language it is that we don't understand anymore because we're getting hard of hearing. And so we just want somebody who speaks English and speaks, and especially Texan English. Then we know what's going on, right? So we have to love that person even though we don't know them and they're on the other side of the world. That means respect and it means politeness and it means patience, something that many of us aren't real strong on. Then we focus on Christ, fixing our faith on Christ, fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, occupation with Christ and finally then we learn to uh, enjoy the happiness of Christ that God has shared with us. Those are the ten spiritual skills, and I've developed those in numerous other places. Now, under point five, these ten um, problem-solving spiritual skills allow the believer to face any situation in life and remain poised, stable, happy in the midst of distressing circumstances and in control of the situation no matter how horrible or agonizing the circumstances may be without giving in to your sin nature. We don't have to give in to our sin nature. That's just a revolutionary concept for most of us. We know that academically, but every day we wake up, we ought to have something tattooed on the inside of our eyelids that says you don't have to yield to your sin nature, buddy. Just wake up and recognize that. You have been freed from that dominion by your, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And then sixth, sin nature control means arrogance and the operation of the arrogant skills. Now, I've summarized these here. Basically, self-absorption, which leads to self-indulgence. We want to uh, just focus on me. It's not about you. It's about me. And when you get two sinners living together, each one is screaming at the other one, it's all about me, it's not about you, and that leads to a lot of problems. When we are focused on self, that leads to self-indulgence. We want to spoil ourselves, and we like to feed the comfort areas of our sin nature with our comfort sins. That's self-indulgence. That leads to self-justification because it works for us. It may not be biblical, but it works for me, and it helps me solve my problems. But it's not getting you anywhere. In fact, eventually it's going to cause great problems in your life. So we have self-justification, which leads to self-deception as we develop all kinds of rationalizations for our sinful behavior. And because we are the ultimate determiner of what's right for our life, That's self-deification. We make an idol of our own passions and our own desires. So, uh, Hannah is dealing with all of this affliction, which should be driving her in one direction, but instead she uses it to focus more upon the Lord. And so she is going to make a vow to God that if God will give her what she desires she will give it back to God. She is going to vow to give the son back to God to serve God all of his life, which would be hard to do. So I want to look briefly at the doctrine of the Nazarite vow. The doctrine of the Nazarite vow. Now this may or may not show up real well. I tried to uh, enlarge it a little bit. You can see it some. This was a Little infographic that Lagos developed on the Nazarite vow, and the uh, the key passage, the key passage for the Nazarite vow, is is found in Numbers chapter six. Numbers chapter six, and uh, if you read through that chapter, you will come to understand what the basic issues are there. Basically, the the term nazir in the Hebrew had something to do with a making a special kind of vow. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 2, the, the Nazarite vow is stated to be a vow of separation unto God. Now, that concept of being separate to God is inherent in the word kadash, which is the word for holy in Scripture. Being holy, for God is holy, means to be set apart to His service. But a Nazarite vow takes it to a higher level. They were taking on a special vow with external, uh, certain external trappings. That was an, uh, an external sign of devotion to God and being separated from the world for the spe- for the specific purpose of serving God. Various priests and prophets uh, that are indicated through the scripture as having taken a Nazarite vow. But the two that stand out are Samson and Samuel, who, as we've studied, lived at approximately the same time. And Samuel here is seen often as a contrast to Samson. Samson's parents were approached by the angel of the Lord and told that his mother, who had uh, been uh, unable to conceive, just like Hannah, uh, she didn't go to the Lord in prayer, but the angel came to her and said, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. Uh, Hannah prayed to God and said, if you'll give me a son, I'll make him a Nazarite from birth. But what we're going to see is that Samson was a failure mostly, but Samuel is mostly a spiritual success. Now, the basic, uh, basic aspects of a... Uh, of a Nazarite vow was that first of all, they were not allowed to eat grapes, drink wine, or have or even touch a grapevine or a product of grapes. That was completely foreign to them. They were not supposed to have anything to do with with the grapevine. They were not to cut their hair. they were to let their hair and their beard grow without cutting it. And third, they were not to touch a dead body. Each of these indicated a special uh, significance of separation unto God. And uh, so this is exactly what Hannah prays to the Lord. In verse 11, she says, "'If you will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head.'" So she is going to make the decision uh, for him. It's interesting that later on in the, in the Scripture, and during the time of Isaiah and uh, uh, Amos, that in uh, Amos 2, 11, and 12, God says, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, you children of Israel?, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. In other words, we see this indictment of Israel later on that in their apostasy, they, they wanted to remove the Nazarites and the prophets from their ministries and from their effectiveness in their particular lives. Now, that's the prayer. Let's see how it's answered. In 1 Samuel 1.12, we read, It happened that she continued praying before the Lord. And she's going, and Eli watched her mouth. So we're going to see in verses 12 through 14 Eli's reaction and Eli's involvement. It tells us a certain amount about his spiritual denseness. So we read that Hannah spoke in her heart, but only, but her lips were moving as she was praying to God. Her voice wasn't heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And this was probably because there was a problem. Uh, when people came together for the feast days, that they would use it, like the Corinthians would many centuries later, would use it as an opportunity to be gluttons and to become drunk with the wine at the festivals. And so she, he just assumed in this spiritually apostate culture of Israel at the time that she was drunk. And so he he, he uh, rebukes her. He says, how long are you going to be drunk? Put the wine away from you. Now, what we see after that is her answer to him. She says, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, of hard spirit. I've gone through difficult circumstances, and I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. I have been praying here. She she in turn rebukes him and exposes his spiritual uh, denseness. And then we go on to read in uh in the next the next verse it's translated wrongly in some verses the New King James which is the verse at the top says uh, don't consider your maidservant a wicked woman now that's a that's the female version of a male version you've often heard me refer to the bible and and first samuel also refers to s o b s sons of belial In fact, the two sons of Eli are described as disobedient sons. In the Hebrew, it's sons of Belial, sons of disobedience and rebelliousness. So she uses the feminine version here. She says, don't consider me a daughter of Belial. The writer is making a contrast between Hannah and her spiritual maturity and obedience and the spiritual apostasy of Eli's sons. So she says, don't consider me a wicked woman for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief. Now, the as I pointed out last time, the Holman Christian Study Bible says resentment, but that resentment in English implies that she's committing a sin, but she's not committing a sin. The Hebrew word there is a word for grief or provocation. It's the word I have at the bottom of the screen, which means that she is going through circumstances that would make her angry or cause her sorrow or grief. It's what she does with that that's important, and she turns to the Lord to uh, uh, to do that. So we looked at that last time, so I'm going to pass, pass go past that slide. And then we see Eli's response to her, how he answers her. He takes his correction in verse 17, and he says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel. Notice, he refers to God as the what? The God of Israel. How did Hannah refer to God? Yahweh Sabaoth. See, he has a. He uses the term Elohim. He Eli never uses the covenant name of God when he refers to God, but Hannah uses the covenant name of God whenever she refers to him. So he says, um, and he says, "May the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of Him." Now, this is an interesting little pun that we see in the Hebrew, and these puns in the Hebrew often bring out important points that the writer wants us to get. But if it's not brought out in the English translation, and if the English translator doesn't catch it, then we miss it, and you have to be, have a fairly sophisticated understanding of scripture even to, to pick up on some of these puns. The writer of Judges used a lot of puns as well to make his points. The, he says, grant your petition which you have asked of him. Now, if you look down, let me see, if you look down to, uh, the end of the chapter, when she, uh, When she names Samuel, she is going to name him because he is the one uh, that she asked of the Lord. Uh, Verse 27, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. And we're going to see this word Sha'ul again. The Hebrew word Sha'al to ask is where we get the name Sha'ul, Saul. Okay, now what's the writer saying? The real response to the request is Samuel, not the first king of Israel is going to pop up down in chapter 9, Saul. Because Saul's a failure. The real solution to the problem that Israel has is Samuel, not Saul. It's just a real subtle, sophisticated foreshadowing through the use of this this word twice in the text to bring out these kinds of uh, these kinds of nuances. so you have these uh, uh, various uses of Shaul. it's translated request. It's also translated loan this this uh, root. it's used twice in verse seventeen, it's used in verse twenty, it's used twice in verse twenty seven it's used twice in verse twenty eight and then it's used again in 220. The repetition of that word, indicates the writer is trying to bring out something and make some sort of a point uh, through these these word plays. Uh, Saul became very important for Israel, but the real answer to the request that was made uh, was Samuel, who is a man who is devoted to God, not Saul. So, Verse 18, she responds, and she says, Notice her humility. Let your maidservant find, what's that word? Favor. What's the Hebrew word for favor? Hen, the root of the name Hannah. It's another pun to bring out. The emphasis in this text is on God's gracious answer to her prayer. And the great God's gracious answer to her prayer is God's gracious answer to her to Israel's unspoken request to deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines. They didn't articulate it. They had collapsed into apostasy. But nevertheless, God is going to respond by giving them a deliverer. So she says, let your maidservant find grace in your sight. That's how I would translate that. Find grace in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So what's changed her orientation from sadness to joy? It's that she has gone to the Lord in prayer, and and Eli has told her, and this is a function of his priesthood, that God will grant her petition, which she has asked of God. So she goes away joyful, knowing now that God is going to answer her request. Now, then we're told what happens to the family. They've been celebrating at the feast. They got up early the next morning, worshiped before the Lord. They went and had sacrifices again. And then they returned to their home at Ramah, which was about uh, 20, 23 miles away, probably a day's journey. That's why they got up so early in the morning. Elkanah then knew Hannah's wife, a euphemism for sexual relations, and the Lord remembered her. Now, this is a... Uh, This is a figure of speech. This is a figure of speech because God had not forgotten her. God did not need to be reminded of what was going on. Uh, This is a figure of speech that uh, indicates that that where it uses thinking or emotions on the part of a human being to, uh, by analogy, talk about something going on in God, it's called an anthropopathism, and it's the use of a human emotion or thought to express something that God doesn't actually possess in order to communicate His plan and His policies. In an anthropomorphism, that's where it talks about the eye of God going to and fro, or the hand of God, or the arm of God. God does not actually possess eyes, arms. Um, and fingers, and so that's something God doesn't actually possess, but it's used because of our human frame of reference to communicate something about God. So the Lord remembers her, and just a euphemism, uh, uh, anthropopathism, God answered her prayer, and it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Shmuel, because I have asked of him from the Lord. Now, the name Shmuel, or Samuel, in the Hebrew, the, you have the first consonant is Sheen, then you have a, an A-class vowel, then you have the Mame, the M, and then you have the, the Lamed. The only difference between the word Shmuel and Saul is the, the, the M in the middle. And so Shmuel doesn't mean to ask, but Shaul does. So, as, as what you have in these the, these uh, sort of popular uh, namings of, of children is, they w- will name him something that sounds like something else. It's not that the name actually means what they say it means, but it sounds like the word that means that. And so it brings that to mind when you hear the name uh, Sh- Shmuel. So the only difference between Shmuel and Shaul is one letter. This again is just something that plays in the background of the Hebrew text, pointing out that the real answer to the request for deliverance is Samuel, not Saul. I'm going to stop there because we're out of time and then we'll finish up, uh, finish up the chapter next time as well as going into the wonder starting to go into the wonderful uh, praise psalm that Hannah composes in the second chapter that, in fact, is a messianic messianic psalm because it foreshadows the coming of the Messiah. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these things uh, this evening to realize we all go through afflictions. We all go through adversity. The issue is not what we go through. The issue is how we respond to it. And too often we respond in our own power and our own effort without taking the time to relax to focus upon you, to claim promises, to use the spiritual skills that are described in the Scripture uh, to resolve those uh, adversities and to walk through uh, those fiery trials, as Peter calls them, so that we are not uh, burnt, we're not hurt, we're not hindered in our spiritual life by the traumas, the difficulties, the adversities, or the prosperities that we go through. Father, we pray that you might strengthen each of us as we face these fiery trials, these difficulties in life, and that we might be more conscientious each time we face them in thinking through how we should respond through the use of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.